Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. The book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds was written long ago in 1841 by the Scottish journalist Charles Mackay. Among the madnesses he studied and debunked were haunted houses, fortune-telling, alchemy, the crusades, witch hunts, dueling, and the tulip bulb mania. It's now October 2020, and it looks like the COVID-19 virus is long behind us, or the worst of it anyway. And yet we are still in the midst of a pandemic of fear that is far worse than any virus. And it's a crisis that has basically divided the country into two camps, open America up or keep it shut down. When the history of the great virus of 2020 is told, I believe it's going to join McKay's long list of the madness of crowds, perhaps near the top. Fortunately, a history of the pandemic so far has been written, The Price of Panic, and one of its authors, my friend Dr. Jay Richards, is with me today to break it down. Jay is a professor at Catholic University, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, the executive editor of The Stream, and is the author of more than two dozen books. Jay, welcome. Bill, great to be with you. We were talking about this before the show, but let's talk about your co-authors because sure. these are you. You and your co-authors are some fairly serious scientists that bring a lot to this, and it's not some just guys, you know, speculating <laughs> sitting at the bar. Although, as I understand it, the the author discussions involve some of that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, I, honestly, I can tell you. Let me tell you who my co-authors are, though. William Matt Briggs, a PhD in statistics uh, from Cornell, has done a lot of work, uh, professional and academic. Uh, in, in statistics, a really smart guy, really uh, smart uh, expert on predictive modeling in particular. Uh, and my other co-author, Doug Axe, PhD from Caltech, he's a biologist, uh, was for years at a, a research facility at Cambridge University and is now in California. Um, and honestly, I don't know how the book could have been written without all three of us because we all bring something different to the table. And, and, and Matt Briggs has his own website. He uh, does. I think he calls it William M. Briggs Statistician to the Stars. Statistician to the Stars, exactly. And so uh, I've known him for years. And actually, Doug Axe called me in March because that's how this book got written. Axe, the biologist, called me and said, Jay, somebody's got to write a book on this. This is a disaster. You can sort of, you know, he sort of thought of me because I'm a generalist and can crank books out very quickly. Well, your quickly. PhD is in philosophy, it, it is. so it's you're bringing a moral compass to yeah, this, which is Yeah, moral compass, and I say the kind of generalist. And well, so you also do a lot of arguments. economics. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, which yeah. we talked about. And, so, and the book itself has a lot of economics in it because you're talking about the, the risks all around, obviously. But there's, you know, most people... Um, when it comes to science, and especially biology, that's just scary to the average person. And so when you get experts that seem to be scientific experts, that, that scares people. That, look, I don't know anything about that. Maybe I have intuitions, but, you know, what am I to do? Who am I to challenge it? Um, and I think that's honestly a major part of the story. That's why the subtitle talks about the tyranny of experts. Tyranny of experts, yeah. I mean, if we put ourselves in the hands of experts uh, has, has been a big issue. It is. Now, you and I talked about this with Steve Moore. <laughs> when was it? I think we looked it up. March 25th? Mar that's the, yeah, late March. That's pretty early. When this was all just beginning. Yep. And 
did you think we'd still be talking about it in October 2020? Absolutely not. I mean, we were mortified that the whole world seemed to be in the process of locking down based at the time on very little actual data and predictive computer models that we learned very quickly were just deeply flawed. Uh, but all of us thought, okay, well, we'll finish the book in June. It's not going to be able to come out till October. That's okay. It'll be an after action report. We hope people still remember what it was like to be locked down. The idea that we would still be doing this in October, I, I have to confess, I, I would never have imagined it. Well, I've broken into two parts to the way I think about it. One is the pandemic of, of the virus. Yes. And then there's the pandemic of fear. That's and right. Let's talk, let, let's cut to the chase. How, mm -hmm. There's a lot of work done now that we didn't have the benefit of six months ago about how serious this really is and how it compared to other viruses and other, yep. other pandemics. I mean, it doesn't compare at all to other pandemics that most people have heard about. So, for instance, the Spanish flu in 1918, a little over 100 years ago, was far, far, far more severe. It may have killed 50 million people uh, over the period of kind of its main run. There are a couple of pandemics that most people don't know about. The Asian flu, 57, 58, uh, killed a million, I think. And then the Hong Kong flu in 67, 68, killed a couple of million, or I may have those reversed. Those are sort of in the relevant, uh, at least at the order of magnitude, though this isn't even as severe as that. And I point that out because, you know, if you're as old as we are, you were alive during uh, that flu in 1968, and most people don't even remember it, and it was more severe. Now, so am I saying, oh, this is just an ordinary flu? No. Uh, the reality is that flu comes in different varieties, and we deal with it every year. Sometimes it's worse than other times. Uh, but I do think it bears now a comparison to, to the flu. We have a respiratory virus. Uh, it's, it's going to be recurring. Um, it's something that kills some people, it makes other people sick, and it has other people that are, that are basically asymptomatic. I think the most important difference between this and the flu uh, is that it's highly selective in who it kills. So there's this gradient that we all know now in terms of age and health. And so if you're, say, 18 or under, you're four or five times more likely to die from complications of the flu. Age 80. Yeah, 18. So 18. Not, hey, let's say 18 or under, you're okay. four or five times more likely to die from complications of the flu than from COVID-19. So mm -hmm. far more likely. So if you're a high school student, or even if you're a college student, this lockdown of colleges is crazy because these kids are at more risk of dying from the flu, right? We don't lock down for the flu. Now you could say, okay, well, professors and staff uh, may be older. That's true. If you're elderly, especially if you're over age 65 and you have severe so-called comorbidities, so let's say you have type 2 diabetes, you have heart disease, you have high blood pressure, you're much more likely to die of complications from this. Well, let's establish, though, what we mean by not that bad relative to a lot of other flus that have happened. There was a chart you and I were talking about before that... Mm -hmm. There's, there's this, we can talk about cases, but yeah. we really need to talk about our deaths. That's right. And so the deaths are the ultimate measure of what, well, everything, yeah, but the death right. for this case. And there's a, a wave of a flu coming through, a seasonal flu, yes. and we have them every year. And the pattern seems to be that if there's a bad, there's a bad flu season one year, there's a low incidence of flu deaths in the next, mm -hmm. and if there's a low, uh, not very, very mild flu, then that builds up people that might otherwise have died in that exactly. year. Exactly. And there's a, there's a, 
there's a terrible term called the crunchy portion of the population, right. which are the older, the more vulnerable. Yes. And uh, let me see if I've got this right. Okay. You can correct me. In 2018, we had what they're calling 140,000 excess deaths mm -hmm. from the flu. That's because 2017 was very mild and weren't very many deaths. And a lot of people were more vulnerable. 2019 was a very mild flu season right. and not many people died and the curve fell below whatever you measure it. And then this year that we're concerned about, there mm -hmm. like 180,000 excess deaths. Yeah. So it's not that different it's not. from 2018. Is that accurate? It is. And this is tough. And most people don't know that even with the flu, the way we figure out flu deaths is not by literally counting them. It's based in part on these complex calculations after the fact on excess deaths. And I think the key thing to remember uh, well, a few things, but one is that everyone has a limited lifespan and ultimately dies of something. And so if you're thinking about this from a public health perspective, you got to keep that in mind, right? And so the closer a person gets to death, uh, especially if they have these comorbidities, the more likely they are to end up dying as a result of complications from something that would not have posed all that much of a risk in the past. Well, this what this does is COVID-19 sort of occupies that same public health space as the flu would normally. It's just that in this case, it's occupying the same space partially simultaneously. So with COVID-19, whereas you have a normal flu season that sort of starts in the fall and then it dips in the spring, and then there's this complicated thing in hot places where people get together inside because it's so hot and there can sometimes be a spike there. COVID-19 came online, if you will, a few months late. And so that's why the curve, though it looks a lot like the flu curve, uh, it's shifted more toward the late spring. It's because it didn't work. It didn't find its way into the population until maybe November or December. We don't know exactly in China, but we should expect that it's going to be, it's going to be very much like the flu. Now, when people say that, that's a neuralgic thing to say because people think that you're trivializing it. No, the flu can be wait, deadly. Wait, wait, neuralgic. It could, it could be, it could sort of set people off as okay. if you're saying, oh, it's trivial. I know someone that died of this. I right. know someone that a cold almost killed me in 2016 from complications. Yeah. So that can happen. And so it's not like we're trivializing the flu. We're just saying, let's put this in perspective. This is not Ebola. This is not an organ melting virus that kills a third of the population. Do you personally fear the flu, fear the, fear the virus? Um, I, I, I would say I moderately fear that if I get it only because I'm, you know, I'm not 25, and yeah. I've had pneumonia twice, and I had pleural effusion, which is a lung problem, but I certainly don't spend any time panicking about it. I take sort of regular precautions, uh, but I do, it doesn't sort of occupy my mind in the way it does my neighbors who seem to be terrified when they see me jogging outside without a mask. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> they would be driving alone in the car with a mask. Yes, absolutely, and this I can say that uh, near where I live, I see a lot of this, unfortunately. So in your book, what do you, what do we, what do you conclude about where we are and, I mean, is this, and how we ought to deal with where we are just in terms of containing the flu? I want to talk yeah. about the fear or the virus, right? The virus, yes, this coronavirus. What do you, what's, the, what, what, what's the takeaway? What should we be The takeaway is that we should do what we do with respect to other respiratory uh, bugs. And so especially, I mean, we're now at the end of it. If you'd asked me, okay, what should we have done in April? I would have said quarantine the people that we know are sick. Right. That's what a quarantine is. It's isolating sick people from everyone right. else and, and pr try to protect the people we know are at really high risk. So elderly people that are in nursing homes, for instance. That's not a quarantine so much as an isolation. And then let everybody else do what we normally do during the flu season, 
remember, okay, who are you interacting with? Are you at a special risk of respiratory illness? And you allow people to make those kinds of decisions. And you don't shut down the economy and destroy hundreds of thousands of people's lives as a result of the, your response. What's the science behind a six-foot distancing rule? The science is it's very hard to nail any of this stuff down. Obviously, it's impossible to get randomized control trials, yeah. right? How do, you, how do you do that? You, okay, we're going to have two sets of people that are exactly alike. One is going to... This gonna, group's going to volunteer. This is skins and shirts. Exactly. You're going to go volunteer to stand two Exactly. Six, and you're going to be... Yeah. <laughs> it, there's no way to do that. And so all of this is on what's called mechanistic plausibility. So if the virus is spread by particles and droplets and things yeah. like that, right, and they tend to fall to the ground if you give them some time... And, you know, then you can kind of come up with some arbitrary distance and you just say the farther are you away from someone, the less likely you are to get it. Well, right. That's the idea. But there's no there's no solid uh, scientific data that this makes much difference. Well, my understanding is and correct me, but that since the pandemic in 1918, the, the rule of thumb has been three feet. Mm -hmm. But at this time, yes. somebody in the UK in January decided exactly. somehow let's be extra safe and made it six feet. Yeah. And it's made all the world a difference in terms of sports events, restaurants, oh, yeah, public gatherings of any kind. Yeah. If you had three feet, that's sort of mostly manageable. It is. Well, the reality is that at least in, I'd say Northern Europe, as someone who's been to lots of countries in Europe, right? Even in Europe, people's comfort with social physical distance varies. You get to Northern Europe, people don't stand more than three feet from each other, but you get to six feet, it's just weird, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it's almost impossible. You mean all the talk shows we yeah. see on TV now with people? <laughs> yeah. It is. And or so, or it's, presidential press yeah, conferences. Yeah, and it's sort of based yeah. on this, okay, look, if, if you are in New Hampshire and somebody else is in South Dakota, you're not going to exchange the virus, right? So the idea is that there's this kind of linear relationship. And so what's the, you know, what's the kind of sweet spot in terms of distance where we can maybe still get around uh, but maybe reduce the virus. But, but the, it's all just conjecture. But but the three of the, the, the three of you, do you authors, do the three of you agree on a safe distance? Are, are no, still, we don't really think, we don't think that there is one. Okay. Yeah, we just don't think that there is what one. What about masks? So, well, masks are complicated because remember at the beginning they were they were uh, disadvised, if, if that's a yeah. word, right? We were yeah. told don't, don't wear, wear them. You shouldn't yeah. wear them, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden in June it became a sort of intellectual orthodoxy that you have to wear it. Now, what I, this is, it's complicated, but what I would say is, okay, look, if you're a medical professional and you're around an infectious diseases, disease um, and you're wearing a properly fitted N95 mask, Right. That's the whole point. N95 means it's going to limit 95 percent of the particulate matter that comes in. Of course, an individual virus could come in, but viruses travel around in, in aerosols or in mm -hmm. droplets. It's going to probably make some difference. That's sort of common sense. Uh, and if you wear a surgical mask and you're a surgeon, that's going to reduce the spit that's coming out. Right. But how relevant is that to the ordinary Person. Well, it's probably not. There's absolutely no data that everyone wearing masks as we actually wear them, right? Which we wear them over and over, we touch the outsides. There's no evidence, one, that this makes any difference. And there's a lot of reason to think that unless you're really careful, it could actually be, uh, you know, be actually counterproductive. I mean, just think of the mask, right? So I wear a surgical mask when I go to the gym because I have to. Let's assume that the gym I go to is just, just riddled with virus particles floating around. I walk around in there for an hour breathing through this mask, and a bunch of that stuff is now concentrated on the surface of the mask. So it actually collects it yeah, It's actually collected it. there. And so this is sort of the least yeah, safe right. surface in the gym now. If I touch it, well, it, you know, all bets are off.
Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here talking with my friend Dr. Jay Richards, author of The Price of Panic, and we're talking about the impact of the COVID-19 uh, panic that, that's uh, going on as we speak. And right now we're talking about whether masks work, uh, social distancing, and all the prophylactic measures we might take to protect ourselves from this. So, Jay, what is it about the are we out of the lockdown phase in this country? Are we still being locked down? We're still being locked down. In, the fact that you can't go to church or okay. go to mass or synagogue, the fact that um, the students at Catholic University, only freshmen can come on campus and only freshmen and only 15 at a time. So that's it's not a really locked down. We're locked out. Locked we're locked out. out. We're, lo we're locked the, out. The term needs to change to locked out. That's from a good gathering. point. Yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. And so we're not exactly under house arrest like they seem to be in, in Victoria, in Australia, in Australia which is New Zealand. Now, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's like a, it's basically a police state. Yeah. Um, that's just the reality. We're, you're right. We're in a kind of a lockout phase. And honestly, I think a lot of this is the result of the fact that um, that officials, having already done certain things, don't want to now reassess the evidence. Nobody wants to hear, okay, you know when you stayed in your house for three months and everybody else was made to stay in their house? That probably didn't do anything. In fact, it may have made things worse. Uh, nobody wants to sort of admit, okay, that was dumb. Let's do something else. And so there's this incentive to keep dribbling this out, because the alternative would be to admit that was probably a terrible idea. So McKay has a quote that I think is pretty well known. It says, men, men, men it, is, it has been well said, think in herds. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be seen that they go mad in herds. Yes. While they recover their senses only slowly and one by one. Wow. <clears throat> And what would he have thought of social media in which we have direct access to extreme outlier events in real time at the speed of light in video form on our bodies? Well, how do you, how do you, well, the, let's yeah. dig into that. We'll talk about the social media's effect of accelerating whatever the bad, uh, bad things are coming from this. We're convinced that this is the key thing, that this okay. is what makes this different from everything else. You can always say, well, the media hates the president, which is true, and that's a relevant fact. The media has an incentive to terrify people, which is true, but that's always been true. I mean, it's scary stuff. You get clicks. You get, you get eyeballs. What happened now that didn't happen in 2009, you know, under President Obama, we had a type of flu that was really worrisome. Um, is you know, we had social media, we had smartphones, but we just had them for a couple of years. What we didn't have is the, the sheer ubiquity of social media and the kind of immediacy of it. And so if you look at the penetration of social media, smartphones, uh, really fast internet mm -hmm. connections in which you can watch video, what we now have is all of these things. The, 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 the social nature of human beings, the fact that we're herd animals, we just are. We're social beings, that's how we're made. Uh, add to that the incentives of the media, the incentives of the media in the United States to hate the president and to always be adversarial now under whatever happens, and then add social media and its immediate effects. And I think it required all of those things in order to have the kind of social pandemic that we're experiencing. I'd say this is the first real global social pandemic that we've ever had. None of the examples that Mackay talked about in his book, of course, uh, were global. They were in, in, you know, the Netherlands or maybe the Crusades. The tulip bulb, yeah, tulip tulip, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This, this was global. It's not like it's just happening in the United States. And in fact, there are just a few outlier countries, surprisingly like Sweden, that somehow managed to resist it. Otherwise, almost everyone has participated in this. So you call it the, the social 
pandemic. Social pandemic. So that's yeah. sort of what I think is the pandemic of fear. Is that that's the right. same thing? Exactly. I mean, we're, we're really re this. Exactly. There's two contagions. There's a viral contagion and there's the social contagion. And the social contagion will ultimately be much more destructive of lives and property and well-being than the viral contagion has been. Well, yeah. I mean, the number of cancer cases oh, is yeah. probably going up. People aren't being treated, they aren't being tested. We're not That's getting right. vaccines. This the the emotional cost of oh, being it's, locked it's down. Oh, it's going to be catastrophic in the last few years. Yeah. Well, Jim Agresti's written about that. Jack, he, he has facts. Yeah. He's got some great statistics. He thinks the number of deaths related to the lockdowns could be ten or twenty times, maybe more. Perhaps the deaths related to the virus. Yeah. There's at the moment. This is what's frustrating about it is that we're having to conjecture based on sort of isolated data. But we know already in March, for instance, that many suicide hotlines. We're seeing 300% increases from the year before. That was just right at the beginning. We'll be able to figure this out after the fact with, again, with excess deaths compared to other years. I think it's, it's realistic that we could have as many people from missed diagnoses and treatments, easily those will equal the deaths from COVID-19. And when you talk about disruption of, of uh, food supply chains in the developing world, so the places where people are already right on the edge, even the UN Food Program predicts that we could have up to hundreds of thousands of deaths per day. Even if they're off by an order of magnitude, very quickly you exceed the deaths from the, the bug itself. So but because of the pandemic of fear, we're really not able to open go things back. You take the, go back to where things were. You yeah. think about sending kids back to school. Kids don't get this. No, they don't. They don't. I mean, they don't get particularly sick. They certainly yeah. don't die. Yeah, there's, yeah, of course, the weird isolated case. And I assure you that CNN will tell us about that case and treat it as if it's represented. Well, one of my friends who's a politician admitted to me, he was a congressman. He said, you know, Bill, we legislate by anecdote. Mm -hmm. In other words, we get a good story. Absolutely. And all this, so we don't do it the way Jay Richards no. would do it with statistics and <laughs> math and balance or the way I would do it. Yeah. Risk and reward. No. No. Uh, anecdote. Well, but one of the things about the schools, and I want to see if you guys have done any work mm -hmm. on that, this one. Somebody said to me last night, well, yeah, you could send the kids back, but the teachers are at risk. I said, well, they're still, most of them are pretty young. And mm -hmm. she said, well, no, most of the teachers are pretty old, and a lot of them are, you know, 40% of America is obese now. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. And 40% of teachers are obese. Okay, so they're representative. So they're in a, they're in a comorbidity group. Yes. What do you do about that? Well, this is the problem. Um, but see, this is true of almost anything, right? And so yeah. um, if you have, if look, if you have severe lung problems, you, if you're rational, are much more careful about yeah. catching things like the flu. You've probably gotten the vaccines for pneumonia. I have, right? And so, but that's the kind of thing you do in a free society is that you give people proper, accurate information, and then you allow them to make these kind of calculations. I think that's right. This bug would be dangerous to someone that's that's very obese, especially if they have type 2 diabetes, and let's say they're 65-year-old teacher, they're at much more risk. That's so you, true. So you'd ask the teachers to self-assess. Yeah, self-assess and, 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 and make compensation. We're doing that at Catholic University. And so professors were given the option, okay, do you feel like you're safe coming in or do you want to do it online? We've set up a hybrid system in which uh, you, if you're teaching freshmen, you might have kids in your classroom and then you have some that are actually online in Zoom, and you're doing it simultaneously. And we sort of built out for that. So that was all available. But nevertheless, we still weren't free to sort of calculate these things. We're under these very severe restrictions. And that's true around the country. Well, when you think about it, we've got a government-mandated, one-size-fits-all uh, regime. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that we know doesn't work as microeconomists, it's right. one-size-fits-all. That's right. 
this idea that you're going to have this centralized response to this. I mean, all you have to do is compare different countries. I mean, if you look at Vietnam, which didn't have a lockdown, has almost no deaths. We've been hearing about how horrible it was going to be in sub-Saharan Africa, where people you sort of guess, okay, people were poor, they have less access to health care, it's going to be much worse. Yeah. They, they're weirdly almost immune to it. And so the reality is there's a bunch of stuff that we don't know, a bunch of stuff we do know. And at this point, we know who's at high risk in our population and who is at low risk. And this idea that we're going to just kind of, you know, sort of impose this one-size-fits-all uh, uh, response on everyone, I mean, all it's doing is, is prolonging the pain in other ways. Well, this gets us back to how this all got started. It, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, what is it? I, I, look, go ahead and tell tell me yeah. the history of this. Yeah, absolutely. China, yes. World Health Organization, yep. <laughs> um, the Imperial College, London. I mean, there's <laughs> some, the, there's some players in there the story. There are players in the story. I mean, for, look, let's accept the fact that its origins are scary. It came from China. China, you know, Asia is known to be a source of scary viruses. That's why you have a thing called the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu. And so that's sort of scary. There's a movie made, I think it's 2013, Contagion, uh, that was about uh, a virus that actually came from from a bat, believe it or not. The whole story sounds the same. It was very deadly. So Was it a Chinese bat? It was a bat in China, believe it or not. So you can't do that now. The China, no. The Hollywood, China, Hollywood yeah. won't make films well, they put where it China's in, No, villain. that's right. This was 2013. Okay. And so, but it's, so it's scarily similar, except that that virus was much more deadly. So we didn't know what was happening, right? So President Trump actually was careful at be the beginning. He restricted travel from China. He was attacked, incidentally, for doing that. Right? So we didn't know what we were dealing with in January and February. That's the reality. Then you have the World Health Organization, which is the UN's public health entity. Um, they, have, they have to sort of make a call. And so uh, Director General Tedros, who is incidentally a, a communist uh, from Ethiopia, decided to run with this uh, model from the Imperial College London, and that's what initially terrified And that everyone. predicted, what, 3.5% deaths? Yeah, three, about basically 3.4% fatality rate, uh, you know, several million people in the United States, maybe 40 million people uh, dead worldwide, unless we did major lockdowns, based on nothing but the assumptions that they plugged into the model. And anybody who works with models, and I work with models mm -hmm. as an oh, economics yeah. right. uh, and statistical guy, you know they're wrong. Well, I mean, you can kind of try if you have data to compare well, they're, them they're to. they're fun to play with. Yeah, they're fun to play with. you don't run your life Yeah, on. and so the first thing you want to do is say, does the model reflect what's happened in the past? Okay, yeah. then it's not totally crazy. Then you want to add data and say, is it predict what's going to happen? And then that's yeah. a way you test it. We didn't have that. And in fact, the whole thing, uh, as some engineers said a month afterwards, said the thing is a buggy mess, more like a bowl of pasta than a sort of well-run computer How program. different is it to model a... Uh, uh, a virus impact on a population as compared to an economic model? It's the same problem, is that you're trying to predict human behavior. And if anything, with economics, we know that people respond to incentives, we know they respond to supply and demand. And so if you're, keep, if you're sticking with sort of microeconomic knowledge, that it, they, those can be somewhat useful. Of course, we know that the models that involve all sorts of complex predictions end up going wrong. When you're dealing with the uh, a virus like this, you're dealing with essentially an infection. You're, first, you have to guess, okay, how infectious is it? How deadly is it? Uh, and then what do people do when they don't know about it? And what do people do when they find out about it? And so mm -hmm. all you can do is really guess. And then, in fact, that's what they did. They made a bunch of guesses, always erring on the side of catastrophe, which is, uh, Neil Ferguson, the, the lead scientist in this. That was at Imperial the, College. Yeah, at Imperial okay. College London. This has yeah. been his pattern for a couple of decades now, is to make completely outlandish predictions that are orders and orders of magnitudes off 
He's never suffered any harm to his career as a result of it. Well, is this where the plot gets political and sinister? Yeah. Because there are agendas. There are China agendas. has an agenda. Absolutely. China does not have our well-being oh, absolutely in mind. Um, there's a left-right divide. Yep. And there's the obvious thing to make Trump look bad. That's right. The economy in the United States is roaring. Yeah. He's, he's likely to coast to re-election. That's right. It seems like a lot of people grasp on this, I believe. That. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind about it. We, got, we have a number of people that actually admitted that. We had people on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States uh, over and over said, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to transform society, to remake the economy, to push through lots of our policies. Now, do I think people sort of made it up to do that? Of course not. Mm. The point is, is that people act according to incentives. And the people that communicate all these things to the public almost uniformly had an incentive to uh, weigh in favor of extreme panic. And so I honestly think, I think the media and those that control social media that just didn't tell us the truth about this thing and that exaggerated, they bear, I think, the bulk of the blame for what's happened. Well, and most journalists didn't major in math or statistics. They're enumerate generally. So you give them an yes. economic story or statistical story, they're not going to run with that. They're, Absolutely they're not. They're going to run with the anecdote. Absolutely not. Unless they will run with worst case scenario numbers. So if you tell them 40 million are going to die, it needs to be a round number. Uh, it, that's really, really good if you want it to be sticky news. But you know, if you start talking about the complex variables or something, it, it disappears. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Jay Richards, author, co-author of The Price of Panic, and we're talking about now the, the, the sources of, of what has become a panic and the political nature of how, the, how, this, pan, how this actual virus has been manipulated for one cause or the other. It's an interesting story. And I want to ask Jay about the World Health Organization yes. in China. Mm -hmm. Now, we've attributed the World Health Organization all sorts of wonderful benign characteristics. Yet, it's pretty clear the guy that runs it is a is a is a real capture captive of the Chinese Communist Party. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And in fact, even mainstream media sources late in the spring finally admitted this. You know, there's a famous uh, a deputy director. So it's it's uh, Director General Tedros, who is a scientist uh, from Ethiopia. People often don't know he's literally a communist. He was a leader in their. Uh, na ethno-nationalist communist party. He is the head of the World Health Organization. There was a great interview, I think it was in April, with a, a Hong Kong-based uh, media outlet with one of the, the deputies of, of uh, the director Tedros, in which he was actually asked about Taiwan. So she was asking him about various things that happened in China, and she said, well, what about Taiwan? They've done very well. Uh, th can you say something about that? And the video went off. <laughs> <laughs> when, of course, China won't let you talk about You're not about allowed Vietnam. to talk about Yeah, well, in Taiwan, is, they don't think of that, they don't treat that as a separate country, right? And so they called him back up, uh, and she asked the question again, and he said, well, we've already talked about China, let's talk about something else, and then just refused to answer the question. It was so bad that they ended up, at, at, at who, they ended up actually taking his bio off the English-speaking part of the website. It was so embarrassing. But it was well, clear he was carrying water for China. Well, the Chinese <laughs> won't even let, let uh, commercial airliners have the name Taiwan on their, no. on their charts. No. If you want to land in Beijing, you can't recognize that Taiwan That's right. exists. And nobody wants to talk about Taiwan. My co-author, by the way, Matt Briggs, was there during the entire writing of this book. So he got, you know. In Taiwan. In Taiwan. Okay. He went over there for work. Uh, and he stayed there until the summer when the book was turned in. And he said, look, you know, the Taiwanese, this is true generally in East Asia, is people are quick to wear masks. So all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of masks. But they didn't have the lockdowns we had. They had private assessments if you might have been at risk. And you just send a 
text. It was nothing like the level of insanity, and they actually did really well. Well, if he's in Taiwan, he's close to the China phenomenon. Yes. What's his take on this? I mean, he thinks that exactly what it appears to be, is that the World Health Organization was carrying water for Beijing. Beijing, that is, I, I'm talking not about the Chinese people, of course. I'm talking about the re communist regime in China is a major funder of the World Health Organization. You have a communist that's at the head. You have people below him clearly carrying water uh, for Beijing. And so they, I think that they, in a, I mean, I think this is documented that for five or six weeks, the World Health Organization managed to essentially protect what was happening in China, which made this worse, not just in the sense that the virus was able to get out, but in the sense that we didn't know what we were dealing with. We should have known what we were dealing with in January or February. Does we didn't figure it out. Does it matter whether or not it was created in the, in the Chinese lab or it came well, from the wet, it, wet market? It, it, it matters a little bit in that I think the wet market story, I honestly think that's the cover story because that's people, you know, first of all, it appeals to American and Western prejudices. If you've ever been to a Chinese wet market, they seem exotic. I've only right? seen about five seconds of a clip. I mean, I've, I've been seen to enough. these. And they so basically have live animals. They have live and they, animals. And they, and they, cut they, them, they kill them right there for Absolutely. You. Yeah. I've been in wet markets wet market. where you have the... the cow's head in the back of the stall. I mean, it's, and that's, it's fresh, but it's sort of scary to us that are not used to it. So that appeals to our prejudices. And in fact, it, I think it's highly likely, not that it was intentionally released, but that it accidentally leaked from this Wuhan Institute of Virology. I think that's, it was probably because they were doing research on bats and it got but out. That's, but that's not, but I, I don't think you agree. That's not really the crime. The crime is how they let it spread. Absolutely. I mean, they shut, the China shut down flights that's right. to the rest of China from Wuhan, but let people fly exactly. to Switzerland, That's, let people fly to California. Which tells you they seem to have known more than they were letting on. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's right. I think it, it, the leak is a security breach, which, the, by the way, the State Department, two years before this happened, had already issued a report saying we're worried about this virology institute with yeah. security protocols. That's one thing, right? But then it basically to cover up exactly what was happening for all those weeks, I think, ended up making the thing much worse. Do you all get into the book on the governors and their we role do. in this? Yeah. Let's talk fact, about the governors. The state. So the, yeah. I mean, the nice thing, for all the accusations that President Trump is a fascist and an authoritarian, he respected federalism. It's yeah. like the president's role, he can't do the things that, uh, that mayors and governors generally do have police power for calling on quarantines, for imposing martial law if they have to. The nice thing about it is that we actually, after the fact, we have a way of comparing different responses. And so you have South Dakota, which didn't lock down at all. I have Oklahoma that didn't lock down at all. We have uh, uh, Florida, which did a sort of partial lockdown early on and then opened up. And then you have New York and New Jersey. Uh, the, the long and the short of it is there's basically no correlation between what happened and whether states had government-imposed lockdowns at all. You can look at the death sort of curves. You can look at the case curves. And if I didn't tell you when the government lockdowns happened in those states, you, you wouldn't be able to figure it out from the data. So the, we're talking about a virus, and the thing that has mystified me is my understanding of viruses as a layman is that you really cannot control their spread. You can't control them. There are things, I mean, obviously, if a virus is in, uh, on an island, right, and nobody comes from the island, it's a respiratory virus, and you don't get anything, you know, it, it, at an the open, limit. But an open society right. like, West, like, Northern, like Western Europe and the United exactly. States or Australia, you cannot... Uh, realistically, without some kind of absurd thing that would create more catastrophe than the virus itself, you cannot literally shut everyone down. Which and is what they tried to do in the They tried to do, that's right. Unsuccessfully. It's what unsuccessfully, it doesn't work. 
Uh, and the reality is, I mean, it, no one is willing to talk about this idea of herd immunity. And it's, again, right now, it seems to be outside uh, the, the Overton window of acceptable conversation. But the reality is that with a virus like this, it's very selective in who it harms, right? Especially, so think of who are the people that are most likely to get really sick and die are also the people in our population least likely to be active in the economy. And so why wouldn't we spend all of our effort protecting them and then let the people uh, use their best judgment that are not at high risk. What you'd want is that people that aren't high risk would build up more immunity to it, and then the people that are at really high risk are less likely to get it from them later. Instead, it, the most that I think we've probably done is rather than having a kind of normal curve, is we have this weird kind of hit and miss. And I would say that because if you look at Sweden, the curve is basically what you would expect, and now they're, they're back to normal. They're much more likely that their population is not going to have to deal with this again because they did crazy stuff the first time around. So the herb immunity, you mentioned the, the Overton window. That's just real quickly. <laughs> that's that's for, for conversations yes. outside the outside. realm of respectability. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, Scott Atlas, I noticed, it's yes. from Stanford, who I, thought, I think is brilliant is now sitting in the press conferences, and last night he was part of mm -hmm. President Trump's press conference, and yet isn't Scott Atlas somebody that's been uh, sort of banned from polite society <laughs> because he, he believes that herd, herd immunity is real? Well, I mean, everyone believes herd immunity is real. He was banned because he said we need to just push herd immunity, by which the media meant what cause rip. people, try to get what them sick. <laughs> yeah, let's have a COVID-19 <laughs> party, right? That's not what it means. And so he's had to say, no, that is not what I'm talking about, right? I'm not advocating that. No one's advocating that, right? But the idea is that, look, with a viral uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, infection that spreads its way uh, through a population like this, especially now that we know how it differentiates between different segments of the population, uh, short of a vaccine, and by the way, we've never had an FDA-approved vaccine for a coronavirus. So that may take a lot longer than we realize. How many coronaviruses have, been there, have there been? Oh, I don't know exactly how many. Some of the common cold uh, often so caused by 30, 40, 50. Yeah, whatever they the last, are. Last yeah. few decades. Yeah, and so there's, 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 think of this as a subset of these things we call viruses. Yeah. We've never, we have, um, you know, we have, of course, a flu vaccine. It's a different kind of virus. So we have to have a new one every year. It mutates much more quickly than this one does. Uh, we are, just aren't good at producing vaccines for some reason for coronaviruses. And the, the, we remember we had two weeks to slow the spread initially. That was the, the initial argument is, look, everybody's going to get it or that's going to get it. Now we had this term flatten the curve. Flatten the curve, which yeah. had a logic to it, right? So if everybody is eventually going to get it, we don't want to overwhelm the, the healthcare system. Let them get it slowly rather than quickly. Exactly, because what you don't want is excess deaths because of triage. Yeah, that's the natural curve for every virus. It goes well, up right away gonna, yeah. because the most vulnerable get hit. That's and right. Then they, and as they get hit, it goes down, 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 down. That's down. right. That's the slope for all viruses. Exactly. They look basically the same. And the, yeah. the idea was that, okay, we're not going to be able to prevent that. And even the original curve, if you look, you've got a big curve and you've got a flat one, it's the same area under the curve. So it's the same number of cases in both, in both scenarios. And everyone recognized that. We're not going to reduce the number of total cases, say, over the year. We might be able to slow them down a little bit to reduce sort of, you know, the number of people hitting the hospitals. Have well, hospitals recovered from this? Well, I mean, the, the, the depressing Because there was no flood the, of... It didn't happen. No, that's no, what I mean. No, it didn't happen. There were places in which they were under pressure in New York and New Jersey, but it was not even enough under pressure that we used the Javits Center, for instance, or we used the, uh, you know, the, the Navy ship that was docked off, off uh, Manhattan. We didn't use those. Uh, and, but what happened is it was sort of a, a two weeks or 15 days to flatten the curve, right? Well... 
two weeks came and went, and then all of a sudden, we're continuing these lockdowns uh, to try to prevent cases, which we had been told two weeks before. Well, we can't do that. I mean, people are going to get this. We might be able to slow down how, how many get it at once. And so now, all these months out, people don't realize they changed the argument on us, and the argument that we're using is based on a kind of illiteracy about how these viruses actually work. How about hydroxychloroquine? We don't talk a lot about that in the book, just because it's not what the book is about, but having looked at it's it... It's another banned subject. It is. It's another banned subject. Um, and it's, quite, it's quite clear to me, I think, at this point, that uh, for, pe for the right people that are treated early on with hydroxychloroquine uh, and zinc, uh, that it seems to make a major difference. That is, for people that are treated early on. In fact, one of the hypotheses of why uh, Africa seems to be doing so well is that, of course, in Africa, people take a lot of anti-malarial medications, and it may be that that has a prophylactic effect. Now, we don't know that. It's just a hypothesis. But I think that's a kind of an additional suggestive bit of evidence that this makes so a difference. So is there any chance that'll come back into common use because it's been used without any side effects and other, for treating other things Absolutely. For, for decade after decade yeah, for, after for, decade. For lupus, people take it or something like it. Americans do before we go to Africa or you go to some place that has a high uh, sort of malarial likelihood. Um, it's not, you know, it's been safe for decades. This, I mean, this is a, an example of the kind of political hysteria that was almost, I think, entirely driven by an anti-Trump uh, bias yeah, on the well, part of the media. And, and Trump think, said something good about it, so they had to attack it. Well, the anti-Trump piece also shows up in the way the story is being reported now, is that we're not talking about hospitalizations anymore because there are very few. Right. And we're not talking about deaths because right. there are even fewer of those. We're talking about cases. Yes. And there's a lot of testing. Of course. And there's a lot of so-called cases, but Many people who test positive, they call it a case, they have no symptoms. No, exactly. And that's a change of the, what the word meant until just a few months ago. I mean, explain. Okay, so a case essentially, a few months ago, I've said, what's a case? That would be, be someone who has very specific telltale symptoms of whatever the, the, the illness is, and then they test positive for, in this case, the, the, the coronavirus. So they have active, they're sort of active virus in their system, and they're sick because of it, so sick they need to be treated. That would be called a case. And that's because what we don't do is we don't just test everyone, right? Well, now we are doing that massive test. So just in, in mid-September, one day we actually tested more than a million people in a single day. And for months now, we've tested at least 400,000 people a day. Well, if you test lots and lots of people, you're going to get lots of positive tests. Some of those will be False positives, some will be real. But now the media is calling those cases. But very often, these are just people that test positive that are completely asymptomatic. And so we've completely changed the terms now. You test hundreds of thousands of people, you call positive tests cases, and then you talk about a huge increase in cases. What the story should be is, look, even though we're testing and lots of people are testing positive, the deaths and the hospitalizations are going down. That's the lead in the story, but the media is almost uniformly bearing the lead. Well, you talk about a White House correspondent who uh, was having a, 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 one of the a TV uh, interviewer who wore a hazmat suit to interview somebody <laughs> yes. while his cameraman was wearing a T-shirt. No, exactly. He didn't even have a mask on. I mean, it was just absolutely shameless. And, and okay. this is, you know, and so I mean, that makes for good panicky TV. It does not make for good uh, informing of the public. So we got a couple minutes. How do we get out of this? I mean, the, the, it seems like you can make, if you're going to look at the data, it looks yes. like the virus is pretty much over. Mm -hmm. But the fear virus is not. It's not. It's not. The, I've looked at the polls. People are still terrified. I think in some ways people are more terrified now than they were for 
a few months ago. Part of it is because they've been terrified for so many months. I think this is going to, uh, there's a real psychological toll uh, that we're going to be dealing with for years for millions of people that have lived under sort of a period of anxiety uh, and panic. I think the only way out of it ultimately is that a critical mass of Americans finally wakes up to exactly what's going on. I mean, I just tell people, I say, look, don't trust me. Just go to the CDC website and see what the actual numbers are. I mean, you saw this poll uh, in July as a COVID-19 tracking poll that uh, they asked people, how, what percentage of the population do you think uh, has died as a result of COVID-19? The average guess is 9%. The actual yeah, so number, even just yeah. accepting the, the, the truth of the attributed deaths, it's 0.04%. So people think that it's 225. one out of how many Hundred thousand people. Well, let's see. It's, so yeah, yeah, it's not a lot. It's basically two hundred and twenty-five times less deadly than the American public thinks it is, right. and that's CDC numbers, right? Okay. And so that who's to blame for that? Well, the media is to blame for that. Well, but also that we've got the governors still. We talked yes. about them. They've they've enjoyed this run. Sure. Yeah. How, how do they loosen? How do we get the grip loosened? Well, honestly, I mean, if you think of places like, let's just take Michigan, right, which is still sort of suffering under this. The only way this is possible is if the public complies. Yeah. Uh, if the public just simply decides not to comply, it's over. Yeah. But if you have 60 percent of the public that's still terrified, 20 percent that doesn't want to rock the boat, well, yeah, it continues she's very, forever. She, she's, the governor there is very, still very popular, Absolutely. even though I think she's been egregious Absolutely. in the lockdown. And, so, and that, that's, that's the danger in a democracy, is that as long as most people think it's the right thing to do, it will continue to being done, unfortunately. What's your conclusion uh, in, for the book? Our conclusion to the book is against the brave new normal. Uh, we think that the, the real danger here ultimately is the loss of political and religious freedom, because uh, when governments use emergencies historically in order to <laughs> extend their power over more and more of society, they're very rare. It's very rare in, in which they actually retreat from that power. And in this case, gov governments uh, are doing things that they've never done before. And we just worry that we're going to be used to as the so-called new normal. We think we need to be against the brave new normal and realize that of all the costs and, and lives and fortunes, there's the cost of our freedom. Uh, and of civil society, that's the thing that's ultimately uh, at risk of being lost in the long term. And we want to wake people up to that. Sounds like a great read. Uh, where can we buy it? Any place that you can buy books online, <laughs> Amazon, Barnes and Noble, just Google the price of panic and it'll come up. Can we up. buy it at Costco? You can buy it at Costco, Walmart, and uh, Target as well. Oh, that's great. Well, <laughs> Dr. Jay Richards, author of The Price of Panic, uh, thanks for joining and uh, thanks for listening and watching The Bill Walton Show, and we'll talk with you next time. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.